Thanks for downloading today's podcast of Clearly Seen, taught by Mike Kokoris. I think you're going to enjoy what Mike has for you today. And if you're ever in the San Fernando Valley area of Los Angeles, we invite you to Lindley Church. Mike would love to meet you personally and answer any questions you have. Feel free to email your comments and questions to michael at kokoris.com. That's michael at C-O-C-O-R-I-S dot com. Now, let's hear from Mike. The presence of the Jewish people on this planet has been a problem. It's been a problem for people of this world, and you may not be aware of it, but it is a problem for you personally. The presence of the Jewish people has been a problem historically. For both Christians and non-Christians. Christians have historically been anti-Semitic because they have accused the Jews of crucifying Jesus Christ. None other than Martin Luther was one of the men at the forefront of such a sentiment and movement. Adolf Hitler, of course, was not a believer, and um, he was anti-Semitic, and of course killed six million Jews. The presence of the Jewish people on this planet is a problem not just historically, but practically in the present. You are aware, I know, of the whole Middle East mess. Middle East madness, it has been called. The very presence of the Jews, again in Palestine, has caused no end of trouble. It is their contention that they have the right to be there. On the other hand, the Palestinians claim that because they have been there so long, they have a right to be there. Now that's not a localized problem. It is a universal problem for the simple reason that um, the nations of the world are lined up on either the Jewish or Arabic side of that whole conflict. The presence of the Jewish people on the planet Earth is a problem not only historically and practically, they are a problem theologically. There are some Christian theologians who claim that the Jews have been replaced with the church, and therefore God no longer has a plan or a program or a purpose for the nation of Israel. On the other hand, there are theologians who dogmatically contend that God has a wonderful plan for the Jewish people and that he loves them dearly. So they are a problem even for Christian theologians. But the Jewish people are a problem for you, spiritually, personally. You may not be aware of that, but their presence is one of your major problems. Let me see if I can explain it to you. You see, in the first half of your Bible, actually it's more than half, called the Old Testament, we are told that God loved Israel and had a plan for their future. But when you come to the New Testament, what you discover is that those Jewish people are in unbelief. 
So the great question is, what happened? Is God going to fulfill his promises to Israel, or isn't he? You may hear that and say, well, what has that got to do with me? And furthermore, why is that some kind of a problem to me? Well, that can be a major problem to you for this reason. God in the Old Testament proclaimed his love for Israel. Is he fickle? God in the Old Testament made promises to Israel. Is he faithful to those promises? Because you see, that same God has proclaimed his love not just for the nation of Israel, but for the whole world. And he has made promises to those of us who have trusted in Jesus Christ as our Savior. For example, you get down to Romans chapter 8 and he says, nothing but nothing can separate us from the love of God. And God says that in the most dramatic, emphatic terms. All right? God loves me. He has an eternal plan for me and claims that nothing can separate me from him or that plan. But wait a minute. What about those same kinds of statements, those same kinds of proclamations and promises that he made in the Old Testament? If he was not able or for some reason chose not to, fulfill those promises to the Jew of the Old Testament, how do I know that he has the ability or the intent to keep those kinds of promises that he's made to believers? So you see, there is a Jewish problem for us personally. And it's a very serious one. It really gets down to the whole issue of is God faithful to his promise, is God fickle in his love toward us? Now, that very question that I have just posed is the question that consumes three chapters of the book of Romans. In order to get some insight into this question, in order to answer it thoroughly, what you really need to do is understand Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Now, obviously, we can't cover all those chapters in any kind of depth in one short message. What I would like to do today is give just the introduction to those three chapters. In the days to come, we will look at the complete answer thoroughly. But for starters, turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And I'm going to begin reading with verse 1. Romans chapter 9, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I tell you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, 
of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. We have been studying the book of Romans, verse by verse, and we now come to chapter 9. Everyone but everyone who studies the book of Romans concedes that Romans 9, 10, and 11 are a unit and that the subject of these three chapters is the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. The problem is the connection between these three chapters and the rest of the book. There are many who come to these three chapters and see such an abrupt change of subject that they conclude that these three chapters are a parenthesis within the total picture of the book itself. I am of the opinion that that is not the case. So let me suggest that this is an integral part of the overall theme and message of the book of Romans. You see, the subject of the book of Romans is righteousness. Paul started out in the first several chapters demonstrating to us that we needed righteousness because we were sinners in the sight of God. Then he told us that that righteousness was provided because Jesus Christ died for us and arose from the dead. We could be declared righteous when we trusted in Jesus Christ. Paul's term for that in the book of Romans is justification. That Greek word simply means to declare righteous. It is a forensic term, a legal term. So I stand before God and I am declared righteous when I trust in Jesus Christ and particularly his death as the payment for my sin. But candidly, just having been declared righteous does not necessarily mean I'm going to live a righteous kind of life. I am still in the flesh. So the next several chapters of Romans talks about how righteousness can be produced in our lives. Paul explains that when we trusted in Jesus Christ, there was more than just the judicial declaring of us righteous. But rather, beside that, we were born again. We were given life, and this life can now grow and flourish within us until we can manifest that life in a righteous kind of conduct. So he tells us that we've been baptized into Christ, and that means we've been baptized into his death. And in that we're in Christ, we're not only baptized into his death, we are raised in his life so that we now have the very resurrected life of Jesus Christ within us. And as we recognize that truth, as we reckon that to be so in our lives, and as we yield to him, obey him, the very righteous life of Jesus Christ will be worked out in our lives. So the subject throughout the book is righteousness. How we need righteousness, how it's been provided and how it can be produced in our lives as we walk by faith and in obedience to the Word of God. But you see, we get down to the end of chapter 8, and as I mentioned a moment ago, Paul is emphatic that nothing can separate us 
from the love of God. That God has an eternal plan for us. That He called us, He's gonna, He justified us, and He's going to glorify us. So the first eight chapters conclude with this emphatic proclamation that nothing can separate us from the love and plan of God for our lives. But you see, that very statement brings up the whole Jewish problem. For didn't God make those kinds of statements in the Old Testament? Didn't he proclaim his love for the Jewish people? Didn't he have a plan for them? And obviously, it appears at least, that that is not being worked out. The Jewish people have been set aside or cast away or something's happened. But God is now working with a new entity called the church. What happened to all those glorious promises concerning Israel? Hence, chapters 9, 10, and 11 of the book of Romans. They're not a parenthesis. They're an absolutely essential part of the book of Romans. The point of these three chapters is the righteousness of God, which has been the subject all along, is now vindicated. In these three chapters, Paul is going to explain in depth, in great detail, God's program for Israel. The point of which he's going to make is that God's righteousness is vindicated, that God is righteous in what he has done toward the nation of Israel. Now that's an overview of what's happening in the book of Romans and in chapters 9, 10, and 11 in particular. As an introduction to just that latter part, that part about Romans 9, 10, and 11, I want us to consider these first five verses of chapter 9. Paul begins frankly, in a rather strange way. In these verses, he introduces the whole Jewish problem, as I'm choosing to call it. And then he assures us of his great, great concern for the Jewish people. Now, I want us to look at these five verses, but I'm going to tell you before we do that they are not going to answer in tito all the questions that I have just raised. These are only an introduction. But I mention all of those questions because those are the questions that will concern us as we move through these next three chapters. So let's see what Paul says as an introduction to this problem. In the first several verses, he simply, solemnly affirms his great grief over what has happened to the Jewish people. He says in verse 1, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying my conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Let's begin with verse 2. That's the point he's making. I have great sorrow. The word translated sorrow literally means pain. It could be used of physical pain, could be used of other kinds of pain. The word translated grief literally means pain. 
and again could be used of uh, physical pain as well as some kind of psychological or spiritual pain. He is describing his grief. Notice in verse 2, he calls it great, and he calls it continual. His grief was intense, and it was incessant. He had great, great grief for his Jewish brethren. Christians, down through the years, have had similar concerns and burdens for people that did not know Jesus Christ. Some of the more famous statements are such things as John Knox crying, Give me Scotland or I die. Or George Whitfield who said, O Lord, give me souls or take my soul. Praying Hyde, the missionary in India, prayed, Father, give me these souls or I die. John Hunt, a missionary to the Fiji Islands, prayed on his deathbed, Lord, save Fiji, save Fiji. Save these people, O Lord. Have mercy upon Fiji. Save Fiji. Or there is the story of David Brainerd, graduated from a seminary in the East in the early 1900s. He could have very easily have taken a very influential church, but instead decided to dedicate his life to reaching the Indians who were without Christ. He went underwent great privation to do that. Traveling in the frontier, what was the frontier of that day, would come to a river and simply wade through it, get off on the other side, take off his clothes, wring them out, put them back on, and continue his trip. Died a young man because of the conditions he had to live through. He once wrote, I dream of lost souls, I care not what suffering I undergo as long as I see souls saved. The Apostle Paul, the men I have just quoted, all had this similar burden, this great, great grief and concern that lost people come to know Jesus Christ. One other word. Paul not only says that, he solemnly affirms it. Look at verse 1. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Now that is the affirmation concerning what he said in verse 2. In verse 1, he's giving two witnesses to his deep personal concern for the Jewish people. The first is his words. The second is his conscience. Notice he says, I tell the truth. In Christ, I lie not. He piles one phrase upon another to emphatically declare that he has deep, deep concern for his Jewish brethren. He says, my conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Ghost, meaning the Holy Spirit's enlightenment of his mind testifies to his great concern for the Jewish people. Now, why was Paul so concerned about the Jews? Some have said that he had been charged with being indifferent, so he wanted to demonstrate that he was not indifferent. 
others have suggested, that um, he was the apostle to the Gentiles. And um, he wanted to demonstrate that even though he had spent his life and ministry reaching the Gentiles, he had not forgotten the Jewish people. Is there not a clue in what he says in these verses? He says, uh, I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. That's pretty vague because he hasn't identified yet who he's talking about. But later he says in verse 3, For I could wish myself were a curse for Christ, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Did he not have the right to be concerned about these people? They were his brethren, according to the flesh. At any rate, Paul is saying in these verses that he is deeply, deeply concerned about the Jewish people. And he calls two witnesses to confirm what he is saying, his own words and his own conscience. Let me ask you a question. I have read statements tonight that you've heard before. Do you have any kind of a concern for people that don't know Jesus Christ? Paul certainly did. Many who have preceded us in the faith have. But do you? I think we all believe that people without Christ are going to hell and that there are times when we tell them that. But do you really have a deep, deep concern for them? There's a funny kind of story that floats around, but it does illustrate the shade of difference of what I'm trying to say. The story goes like this, that uh, one Christian said to another that they had dismissed their pastor. And his friend said, why? And he said, because he was always telling us we were going to hell. And uh, the friend said, I understand you have a new pastor. And he said, yes. What's he like? Well, He's always telling us we're going to hell too. They said, the friend said, well, what's the difference between those two? They're, same, they're both preaching the same message. And the Christian replied, well, when the first one says it, he acts like he's glad. And when the second one says it, he acts like it deeply grieves him. Now, there's a sense in which we can believe that people without Christ are going to hell. And there's a sense in which that can deeply concern us. That's what Paul is saying in these verses. I am deeply concerned. I call my speech, I call my conscience to bear witness. Inside and out, there is confirmation that I am genuinely, intensely, incessantly concerned about the Jewish so, these first two verses are just telling us that Paul solemnly and soberly affirms his grief over the lost condition of the Jews. In the next several verses, he gives us two reasons why. Look at verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ, my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. That's the first reason. Second, 
who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, so forth. That's the second. In other words, these several verses give us two reasons why Paul was so deeply concerned about the Jewish people. I hinted at one a moment ago when I read verse 3. Let's look at it more carefully. The first reason that he was so deeply concerned about them is because of his relationship to them. Look at it. I could wish myself were a curse for Christ. By the way, he isn't saying, um, I do wish that. He said, I could wish that. And the Greek text bears it out that he is not saying this could actually happen. It can't. He's saying, if it were possible, I could almost wish this. But notice what he says. I could wish myself were accursed from Christ, my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. I think that there's a sense in which he is saying, because of my relationship to them, I have this great, great concern that they come to Christ. That they are my brethren. Now that word is used in the New Testament of being physical brothers, and it's used in the New Testament of being spiritual brothers. Here, it is obviously a reference to um, being physical brothers. He talks about the fact they are my kinsmen, and they are according to the flesh related to me. What he is saying is these are my people, not spiritually. That's the cause of the grief. But they're my people physically. And that makes me deeply concerned for them. We ought to be concerned about the spiritual condition of people who are near and dear to us. Our relationship to them ought to make us concerned about their spiritual condition. Are you burdened, concerned about the spiritual condition of people that are close to you? I mean your family. I mean your friends. Does their spiritual condition concern you? It ought to. Your mother, your father, your brothers, your sisters, your wife, your husband, your children, your extended family, people with whom you work, your friends, your neighbors. Those people that are close to you, especially those who are your brethren, your kinsmen, according to the flesh. Does their spiritual condition concern you? Some time ago, some Greeks came to see me. They have a radio broadcast. And uh, being a Greek, they wanted to know if I was interested in reaching Greeks. What they really wanted to know is um, if uh, we as a church could support that broadcast. Well, we are supporting missions, as you know, quite extensively. And uh, we have policies that determine the, all of those kinds of things. But their assumption was this. I am Greek. Therefore, I ought to be interested in reaching Greeks. Huh. Is that a good assumption? That's a very good assumption. That is an excellent assumption, one that is very biblical. And over the years, one of the great thrills I've had is witnessing, in a few cases, winning 
Greeks to Jesus Christ. I dearly love to do that for the simple reason I have a Greek background, and that thrills me. All I'm saying is that what Paul is saying in this passage is I solemnly affirm to you, I deeply am concerned about the Jews because they are my people. There is a second reason, and it's this one that he develops most extensively. He says in verse 4, Who are Israelites, to whom pertaineth the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Now, each one of these phrases is highlighting a privilege of the Jewish people. So that in verses 4 and 5, Paul is saying, I am so deeply concerned about these people because of their relationship to God. In verse 3, he started out explaining why he was concerned. That's the little word for at the beginning of the verse. And he first mentioned his relationship to them. But what he develops is their relationship to God. Now, very briefly, let's look at all these phrases, and I'll show you what I mean. He calls them Israelites. The Jews got to be called Israelites because Jacob wrestled with God, and he had his name changed to Israel. God did Jacob a favor. Matter of fact, one theologian commenting on this said, this implies they are God's favorites. Though that uh, turns some people off, the simple reality is God chose the Jewish people and the Old Testament. He chose that nation to give the word of God to them and for them in turn to give the word of God to the rest of the world. At any rate, that's one of their privileges. They are Israelites. Verse 4 says, to whom pertaineth the adoption. God adopted them, which is perhaps another way of saying something like they're Israelites. They were special. They were adopted. God had a special relationship with them as father to son and calls them his children and his son in the Old Testament. Verse 4 says, they were given the glory. Now, that is a reference to the very personal presence of God. They call it the Shekinah glory. The Hebrew word Shekinah means dwell. God gave them instructions for the tabernacle, And then he personally descended and dwelt in the tabernacle. So that the glory is the very presence of God. He adopted them and gave them his very presence. Verse 4 mentions the covenants, which of course is a reference to the several covenants he made with them. Notice it's in the plural, not the singular. He made a covenant with Abraham that was reconfirmed with Isaac and Jacob. He made a covenant with Moses and another with David, not to mention the new covenant written by Jeremiah. So that God made covenants with Israel, again giving them special privilege and place. 
Verse 4 mentions the giving of the law. God gave to them his divine regulations. Romans chapter 7, Paul calls the law holy, just, and good. God gave Israel that law. Lord Disraeli, the famous prime minister of England, was once taunted about being a Jew. And he turned to the person and said, Yes, my friend, I am a Jew. I belong to the most wonderful nation on the earth. Let me remind you that when your ancestors were gathering acorns in Germany, man were giving the law to the world. And he's right. Is the Jewish people gave us the law, and for that matter, the whole written Old Testament. Verse 4 speaks of the services of God, and that's a reference to the tabernacle and the Levitical system. The law is in Exodus. The Levitical system, of course, is in the book of Leviticus, where they brought sacrifices to worship God. The services of God is the whole worship system that God gave to the Jewish people to show you the high regard the Jewish people hold the services of God. Let me refer you to what an ancient Jew said. There are three pillars on which the earth stands. The first is the Torah. The second is worship. And the third is acts of kindness. The Jewish people put the law and the worship services of the tabernacle as pillars holding up the whole earth. According to the Old Testament, particularly Ezekiel 40 through 48, in the millennium, they will return to that form of service. So, he says, one of their privileges was the service of God. Then he mentions the promises, verse 4, which is no doubt a reference to all of the prophecies and promises by the prophets of the fact that God would bless Israel in the future. In verse 5, he goes on to talk about their privilege of having the fathers. Their fathers were men like Abraham and Moses and David and many, many others. As Americans, we consider ourselves blessed because we have such forefathers as Washington and Jefferson and Lincoln. The Jews are proud of the privilege of having as their forefathers men like Abraham and Moses and David. But to cap it all off, he says in verse 5, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. They not only had the prophets who gave them promises, they not only had the fathers, they had none other than the Messiah himself. Notice that verse 5 does not say the Messiah was given to them, but he came from them. He was to the whole world. He was from the nation of Israel. Now, the rest of this verse is an interesting little study of the person of Christ. Look at what verse 5 says. That from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. 
That indicates that he was a human being. Now look at the rest of the verse. Who is over all the eternally blessed God? Amen. Did you see that? That verse called Jesus Christ God. Is that what your Bible says? According to the flesh, he was a Jew. But he is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Now, there are two ways to handle the last phrase of verse 5. Some claim that it is um, a reference to God the Father, uh, that God is over all and is eternally blessed. Frankly, that is grammatically possible. However, it is equally possible and more natural, according to the Greek construction of the sentence, to interpret this to mean that Jesus Christ is above all and that he is the eternally blessed God. I believe this verse is telling us that Jesus Christ is a human, according to the flesh of Jew, but that he is overall, he is sovereign, and that he is the eternally blessed God forever. Amen. So that both the humanity and the deity of Christ are presented to us in this verse. I'm not alone in that interpretation. No less than Origen, Chrysostom, Augustine, Aquinas, Erasmus, Calvin, and lately, Bart, Bultmann, and Bruce, F.F. Bruce, have all taken the interpretation of the last phrase that I just gave. John Calvin said, to separate this clause from the rest of the context for the purpose of depriving Christ of this clear witness to his divinity is an attempt to create darkness where there is full light. Understood the way I've interpreted it. This is one of the strongest statements in the New Testament as to the deity of Jesus Christ. I personally don't think that that's a debatable issue or that we need doubt that Jesus is God. It is the only way to interpret the New Testament and make sense out of it. Be all that as it may, this verse is saying that Christ is human and he is divine. One illustration. When he was on the earth, he paid taxes. That's human. The way he did it was to tell Peter to go down to the lake and pull a fish out of the lake and find money in its mouth. He supernaturally supplied. That's divine, as all us humans well know. So that Jesus Christ was one of the blessings that he gave, God gave, to the nation of Israel. Now, what these verses are doing, and I mean verses 4 and 5, are giving us all of the privileges that God gave to Israel. They were adopted. They were favored. They were given God's presence and promises. They were given his word and his worship. They were given mighty men. They were given the very Messiah himself. Think of all the enormous privileges these people had for them to reject the Messiah. For them who had all of that to reject Jesus Christ. He's 
enough to cause grief in the heart of anyone. And that's Paul's point. That's what he's telling. To sum up, he is saying that he was deeply grieved over the spiritual condition of the Jewish people because of his relationship to them, their relationship to God. Now, let me make a couple of observations. One is that this is just the introduction to the whole Jewish problem. That what Paul is about to do in the next two and a half chapters, better than two and a half chapters, is tell us what God is doing with his people, the Jews. It's hinted at here. It's clearly stated by the time we get to chapter 11, the end of it. The point is this. God is not fickle concerning his love. God is faithful concerning his promises. This has profound ramifications to us. If God is faithful to the promises he made to the Jews, then we can be assured that he will be faithful to the promises he's made to us. And that's the point of this passage the overall context of the book of Romans. That's critical. You can be assured of God's love for you, that nothing can separate you from the love of God. Part of the way you can know that is because of God's faithfulness to his promises to the Jewish people. We will develop that in the days to come as we move through these next several chapters. Now let me make another observation. To introduce the whole subject of the Jewish problem, Paul speaks of his personal grief and concern for his brethren. It seems to me that that message ought to settle in on us. That what he's arguing is, given their position, and privilege before God makes me deeply concerned and grieved that they don't know Him. Now, I think that same kind of truth ought to strike us. That we ought to be concerned about people that are near to us simply for the reason they are near and dear to us. But for that matter, we ought to be concerned about every human being because of his place, the privileges he has before God. Every human being on the face of the earth is created in the image of God. Every human being on the face of the earth is a, is a human being for whom Christ died. Every human being on the face of the earth has an eternal soul. So because of who they are, they're made in the image of God. They're people for whom Christ died. We ought to be concerned about them. We ought to be grieved. We ought to be motivated to give them the gospel or send someone to give them the gospel, which is what missions is all about. 
the same kind of argument that Paul uses in Romans chapter 9 applies to us. These are people, Paul argues, that God has blessed with privileges. And that makes me concerned about them. In a very similar fashion, we can say that God has blessed all humans with certain privileges, like making them in His image, like sending His Son to die for them, like giving them an eternal existence in either heaven or hell. That that alone ought to make us concerned for them. The tragedy is that some people are no more concerned about other people than they are their pets. Matter of fact, some people are more concerned about their pets and plants than they are people. Which just doesn't wash biblically. See, God created the Jewish people, chose them, and God has created all humans. If, you, if your heart beats after God's heart, then you will be concerned about the things that God's concerned about. You will love what God loves. What God loves are human beings. Frankly, especially, Jewish people. So we ought to be concerned about them too. Because he is. He's concerned about the world. So we ought to be too. D. Campbell Morgan once received a note from a small boy. The note read, last night, after hearing you speak, I trusted Jesus Christ. Ever since, I have been unhappy. Dr. Morgan looked up from the note, shaking his head. Then he read the rest of it, and it said, because my father doesn't know Christ. That says it all. What about the Jews? Well, the first thing, we ought to be unhappy. We ought to be grieved because they don't know Jesus Christ. What about your family? What about your friends? What about the people that are near to you? How about your neighbor? Well, for starters, we ought to be grieved. We ought to be deeply concerned. They don't know Jesus bow forward of prayer. Father, thank you for sending us the message so that we could know you. And may the Spirit of God work in our lives so that we become concerned about other people. So concerned, we pray. So concerned that we give. So concerned that we go. Grant us that grace and use us as individuals, as a church, to reach many for you and your Son. In his name that we pray, amen.